The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Acts 17, 22 to 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. And yet he is not actually far from each of us, for in him we have life and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen. It's so good to get to sing together that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Amen. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here at Citizens Church. If you're new, I want to welcome you. Uh, as Kirby said, we have not been meeting for hundreds of times. We have, in fact, been meeting for nine times. Uh, we're a brand new church plant here on the east side of Charlotte that seeks to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him. Before we get into our text this evening, I do want to point your attention to something we have going on in our church this Friday. So this Friday is our first ever Redeem Marriage Night. And I realized that naming of Events is not my strong suit as a pastor. So I have a lot of spiritual gifts. Naming events that are compelling are not one of them. And so I've been getting a ton of questions about, hey, like, does my marriage need to be in crisis to come to this? Like, what's going on here? Let me kind of give you a picture for what the goal of this Friday night is about. So if you're anything like Lindsay and I, it is really hard to get good quality time with your spouse or your fiance. Amen? That's a fitting thing to say amen to, right? Unless you guys have a lot of time. I don't, right? Kids, work, life, just get in the way. I was having a conversation with one of our engaged couples in our church this morning about them realizing there's a difference between time together and quality time together. Right? And so what we want to do on Friday night is we want to give a chance for you to get quality time together. And so we're going to have a ton of fun. I, I promise you it is going to be worth the date night. Okay, We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to have giveaways. We're giving away uh, dinner for two to Lindsay and I's favorite, new favorite restaurant in Charlotte, Ruru's Tacos and Tequileria, which is the best place you can go ever in the world. Uh, we're going to have a ton of fun games. We're going to have a guest speakers. Uh, we're going to have in time for you also to spend with your spouse or fiance asking questions getting to know one another and what's going on in each other's hearts over the past weeks, over the past months, really a time of connection as well. While you're having that time of connection, you're going to eat nothing but cake, which is what you want to eat during a time of sharing your heart with your spouse or fiance. So this Friday night, if you have not signed up, please, please, please sign up by this Wednesday. If you can, we would love to see you there. If you're not married, you're also welcome to come. If you want to learn, just know what's going on in the the marriages and the relationships of people in your church family, 
family or if you want to prepare down the road, if the Lord brings you a spouse, wherever that be, you're more than welcome to come as well if you are single. Acts 17. Acts 17 is where we are going to be. Oh, we have two weeks left in our series on Acts, how the early church was planted. And we're going to turn our attention for the last two weeks on to who, this guy who might be next to Jesus, the most famous figure in the Bible. And that is a guy named Paul. Paul starts his kind of career as a religious zealot, as an enemy of God, and God gets a hold of his heart. Acts chapter 9, he's on the road to Damascus. God shows up. He's like, hey, Paul, you're not on my team. You're actually against me. Stop killing followers of Jesus. And Paul's like, all right, I'm not. He gets converted, and then he goes on to be one of the greatest missionaries, if not the single greatest missionary the world has ever seen. He plants a ton of churches. He writes a quarter of the New Testament, and he takes the gospel to a bunch of places it has never been. And one of those places that he takes the gospel is what we're going to look at tonight, and that's the city of Athens. And Athens is the city full of rich history and culture, but they have no framework for anything to do with Jesus or the Jewish scriptures or anything to do with the one true God. And so what we're going to see is I want to walk us through this story of how Paul takes the gospel to this culture of Athens. And then at the end, I'm going to pull out some things that we can learn as we engage our culture with the good news of the gospel. So we're going to walk through the story together, and then I want to pull out some next steps, some steps we can take to engage our city and our culture around us with the good news of Jesus. Acts 17, if you need a Bible, there should be some on the ends of the rows. If you have that Bible, it's page 540. Acts 17, let's start in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. All right, so pause there. I promise we're not going to pause this much. But Paul is by himself in this city. He's waiting for his two missionary companions, Timothy and Silas, who got separated from him because they were in a city called Berea, and they were preaching the gospel, and a riot broke out like it usually does when Paul preaches the gospel. And so he goes to Athens. Athens is this city with a lot of rich history. It was at one point home to some of the world's greatest philosophers, people like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. It's the birthplace of modern democracy. It has all of this history. But I want you to notice what Paul sees about the city. Keep going. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. There was a saying in Athens at that time that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. They were a city full of idols and idolatry or idol worship. And idolatry is going to be a key idea in this passage and in the sermon. So I want to make sure we're on the same page. So when it says idols, what it means is when he says it's a city full of them, that they are a polytheistic culture, which means that they worship multiple gods. And what they've done is they've actually, okay, if there's this God, let's say a God of the sun or a God of love or a God of money, they have taken wood or stone or some other material and they've carved a God image to represent that God of whatever that thing is. And not only have they made an image, they've also made a temple in which the image is going to reside. And they would worship and they would serve these gods in order to get whatever they were the god of in return. So if they had a god of money, they would make this image that would represent the god of money and they would worship and serve and sacrifice to the god of money to get money. Now, while in 2021, in our day and age, there are certainly people who practice idolatry and idol worship in this way, chances are that most of us, if not all of us in the room, this is not our form of idolatry. 
But biblically, the category of idolatry is actually much bigger than just making images out of wood or stone or something else. Biblically, idolatry is anything or anyone we put in the position of God in our lives. Let me say that again. Idolatry is anything or anyone we put in the position of God in our lives. Jesus is supposed to be on the throne. Right? He's on the throne of our world. He's on the throne of our lives if we are followers of him. And idolatry is anytime we go, all right, Jesus, you're not on the throne. This thing or this person or this idea is now ruling and reigning in my life. That is idolatry. It's, it's anything that we sacrifice for or we give our lives up for or we live our life for that is more important to us than God. Anything we look to for ultimate value or ultimate meaning or ultimate purpose or ultimate identity, that has become an idol. Pastor Tim Keller, in his wonderful book on idolatry, it's called Counterfeit Gods. I would highly recommend it to you if you have not read it. Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller. This is what he says. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you, what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. So for example, I've been giving this example already, you might live your life for money, right? You might sacrifice for the pursuit of money. You might give your life away trying to get more money. You might base your identity on how much or how little money that you have. Now, this is no different than the people of Athens in 51 AD. Now, they might carve an image to worship their money, they might name him Plutus to worship their money, but it's no different. They sacrifice for the God of money, and we sacrifice for the God of money. It's one-to-one. -one. It's idolatry. It's anything that sits on the throne of our lives that is not God. So Paul's going to address this in just a second, but let's keep going in our story. Acts 17, verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So kind of the city center. That's what the marketplace is. It's this kind of city center town square. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. All right, so he's got two groups that he's kind of debating here. He has the Epicureans and the Stoics. And these are complete polar opposite groups. So the Epicureans are kind of, you're like, I don't know, people still use the phrase YOLO. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Maybe not. I'm not on TikTok, so I don't know. But YOLO, right? They're kind of like, hey, whatever you want to do, go for it. Ultimate pursuit of pleasure. If I can just live my life in maximum comfort and joy and pleasure, that was the Epicureans. And then the opposite was the Stoics. And we still kind of use that term today. You know, you call someone like, oh, they're a Stoic person. They were the exact opposite of that. So they lived their life for virtue and for duty and for making the best of themselves as much as they could. So it's those two groups, Epicureans and Stoics. Keep going. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? In other words, what does this ignorant guy have to say to us? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. If you like to write in your Bible or highlight on your phone, underlies that. He was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. So Paul's face to face with two groups, Epicureans, do whatever you want, go for it, live life to the max, full pleasure, full joy, and the Stoics, no honor, duty, right and wrong, black and white. And he says, hey, both of y'all, bring it on. Let me tell you about this guy named Jesus. Let me tell you about this resurrection. 
I don't know if you've been following along with our series, but that's been the drum that the early church has been beating over and over and over and over. That was Paul's message that he preached. That was Peter's message in Acts 2 that he preached. That was Stephen's message in Acts 6 that he preached. That was Philip's message that he preached in Acts chapter 8. Over and over and over again, the church, the early believers, followers of Jesus, lived and quite literally died by the resurrection of Jesus. It marked them as a people. Paul elsewhere in scripture says that when he joined this church, he wanted to know nothing among them except Christ and Christ crucified. This was their message they held to. This was their number one thing. They went into a new city and they said, here's what you have to know. There was a guy and he was fully God and fully man. And he died on the cross. He lived a perfect life that you couldn't live. He died the death that you deserve, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he got up out of the grave. He physically rose from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And now he rules and reigns forever. And one day he's going to return to judge the living and the dead, and to make all things new. So they said this over and over and over again. Jesus, the resurrection. Jesus, the resurrection. If you want to know what we're going to preach as a church over and over and over again, you're going to get sick of hearing it, hopefully, is my prayer. Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection. That's what they're about. That's what we want to be about. Verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So they take him from the city center, the Agora, to the Areopagus. It's this hill that overlooked the city. And the whole point of the Areopagus is that they would bring new teachers or new prophets or new uh, philosophers to this place. And they would say, hey, tell us about your God. Let us know, and we'll decide if it's good enough to add to our collection of other gods. So that was the whole point of the Areopagus. So to put this into perspective, imagine you are somewhere public when crowds are allowed again, all right? Let's say you're at a school board meeting, or you're at an HOA meeting, or a board meeting, or a worker thing, and you're hanging out, and you're a bunch of people around you. I don't know, whatever a group setting would be. I've forgotten that they exist. A group setting, right? And somebody says to you, hey, you there, Bill, Come up, and we're going to have five minutes, and I want you to tell us why we should believe in Jesus and the resurrection. Oh, and before you do, by the way, everyone here knows nothing about the Bible or about Jesus at all. You shaking a little bit? (laughs) All right, here we go, right? That's what's happening to Paul. They bring Paul up. He's by himself. His companions have left him in Berea. He's in Athens by himself, and they're saying, all right, you, sir, preacher of foreign divinities, come tell us about Jesus and the resurrection. And they have no background of any of this. Let's look at what Paul does. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, this is not his full sermon, it's just an outline, but it's it's important to note some of the specifics. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious or spiritual. Verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. In other words, this was their just-in-case God. Like They were so nervous in their polytheism. They were so nervous that they had all these different gods that they were afraid they forgot one. Okay, so they had an altar built just in case some random God showed up and said, hey, where's my altar? They were like, this one. We just didn't know your name. So glad you're here. Please don't burn our city. Right? This is the whole goal of this altar. It's the unknown God. It's the just-in-case God. Here's what Paul says. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul steps in to their cultural grid. He said, let me start with where you're at. 
This is the pattern we've seen throughout the book of Acts. And when we present the gospel, when we present the good news, it's important for us to start where people are. He says, hey, I perceive that you're very religious. I perceive you have some category that there is a God or gods and they exist. I perceive that you understand there is more than just the physical world around you. Let me start there. Now, what Paul is not doing is he's not saying, hey, this unknown God, his name is is God, Yahweh. You can just add him into your list of gods. He's not affirming it. He's recognizing it. He's starting with where they are. It's the same thing that Philip does with the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Philip rolls up on this random chariot on a desert road, Acts chapter 8, and he's like, oh, he's reading Isaiah. Let me start there and work our way to the gospel. Earlier in Acts chapter 17, Paul does something completely opposite. Verse 2, he goes into the synagogue. And he's telling the gospel to these Jewish religious leaders, and he starts not with appealing to culture, but he starts by appealing to the Jewish scriptures. And here he's going to say, I'm going to start where people are. I'm going to start with what they know. Let's establish some commonality. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. They should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Their whole, in Athens, their whole polytheistic worship religious system was built on specific gods for different spheres of life, different parts of life, that they would serve and sacrifice in order to appease and get something from. All right, that was their whole system. A bunch of different gods for a bunch of different areas of life. We sacrifice and serve them so they will give something to us. And Paul says, my God, the one true God is totally different. He's God of everything. He's God of all creation. He has created all things and therefore he is over all things. And also you don't come to him first. He first came to you and he has made a way for you to know him through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Then you come to him not to get something from him, but rather for him himself because he himself is the treasure. Totally different frameworks. It's not just a bunch of gods to one God. It's totally different. The whole religious system is different. Verse 27, keep going. He says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So he's quoting from their own philosophers, their own poets. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Hey, listen, God's not like all these other things that you just created. He's God. He's the one true God. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says, God has been patient with you. He's been waiting. He hasn't poured out his just, righteous wrath on your idol worship and idolatry because he's patient. But there's coming a day where this man, Christ Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, who he raised from the dead, there's coming a day where he will return and he will judge the living and the dead. That day is coming. So what do they do? They need to repent this message that we've seen throughout the book. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Anytime you preach the gospel, some will mock. Some will say, let me hear more. And some will believe. That's how it goes. 
All right, that's the story of Paul in Athens, right? One of the most famous mission passages in the whole of Scripture. He goes into the city of Athens. He meets them where they are. He speaks through their cultural grid. He tells them about Jesus and the resurrection. Some believe, some don't. What can we learn? What do we have to learn from this? I want to give us four steps as we think about stepping into our city, because here's why this is important. When you step out on mission as a child of God, when you step out to live into your identity as a witness for Christ, you are not stepping into neutral territory, right? You're not going into a world that just is simply not believing anything going, hey, I hope someone tells us something to believe so that we can trust in Jesus and repent of our sins and receive him and life eternal with God. You're not going into neutral territory. You're going into a world of worship. You're going into a space where people are not neutral to the things of God. We know that based on scripture. We know that based on culture. We know that based on our own lives. No one is neutral to God. Everyone is worshiping something. And so we have to know how do we step into our culture and our context, 2021, Charlotte, North Carolina, with the good news of Jesus. I want to give us four things, four steps. Number one, recognize the idols of our city. Recognize the idols of our city. Verse 16, again, Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him. Notice this, as he saw that the city was full of idols. Verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. The first step to engaging our culture and our city with the good news of the gospel is you must ask the question, what is our city worshiping? What are the people around me going after with their life? What are they sacrificing for? What are they giving up their lives for? What do they spend their time and their money and what do they give their attention to? I love how author David Foster Wallace talks about it. He's he's not a Christian, but he speaks so clearly to this. He says this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. This is not a Christian guy. He's just speaking as it is. There's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. See, the opposite of Christianity, the opposite of following Jesus and worshiping Jesus is not atheism or neutrality. It's worshiping something or someone else. All of us worship something. All of us have something where we wake up in the morning and go, I'm living my life for that. All of us have something that kind of changed our framework to go, I'm entering into and I'm giving my life away in sacrifice and service to something. If you're like, no, that's not me. I'm not giving my life away to anything. Then you're giving your life away to comfort and not giving your life away to anything. Still idol worship. Here's the deal. Athens, 2,000 years ago, and Charlotte, North Carolina today are really not all that different. I think if someone came from 51 AD Athens, they would actually feel right at home amidst our idolatry. Let me show you this. Let me prove it to you. They could turn on our TVs, turn on our news stations, turn on our phones, and see that we worship politics. Now, they would call it Athena, the goddess of wisdom and war and politics. We would call it Democrat or Republican, this candidate or that. They could look at our Instagram feeds or our web browser history or our phone apps and see, we worship beauty and sex. Now, they would call it Aphrodite, the goddess of sexuality and beauty. We would call it freedom, doing what feels right. They could look at our budgets and our weekend calendars and see, we worship sports. They would call it Nike, the goddess of victory. We would call it the Carolina Panthers or the South Carolina Gamecocks, Tiger Woods, just personally. They could hang out with us on the weekends and see we worship alcohol. They would call it Dionysius, 
the God of wine and partying. We would call it a Friday night or Saturday afternoon and just cutting loose and trying to relax after a hard work week. It's not all that different. Here's the thing, church. If you want to reach your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members with the gospel, you need to know your own idols, what you're chasing after, what you're running towards, and you need to know the idols and false worship of those around you. Everybody worships. What are you giving your life and sacrifice to? What are the people around you giving their life and sacrifice to? Here's some questions that will help you start to recognize this. What are people most afraid of? What keeps them up at night? What do people turn to when life gets hard? What's the thing they run to for comfort or for reprieve? What What do people complain about the most? What seems to frustrate them? What makes people the happiest? What seems to really get them excited? How do people define themselves? What's the thing they intro themselves with? Here's a big one. What makes people angry at God? Usually, in my experience, people get angry at God because he fails to give them their idols. What makes people angry at God? You have to recognize the idols of your city. Number two, expose the idols of our city. Expose the idols of our city. So after we recognize, hey, what are people grasping for? What are they chasing after? What am I grasping for and chasing after? What am I trying to build a life upon? What am I looking to for identity and meaning and value and purpose? We then have to expose where those things lie and where they do not give what they promise. So what Paul does in, in Acts 17, 25. He says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything. So in their pagan temples, they would have servants whose entire job was to take care of this carved thing of wood or stone, right? So they would actually set out food for this idol to eat. They would wash it. And Paul's very clever argument here in verse 25 is, hey guys, if you have to make this God a sandwich, how much of a God is he? And also, if you have to clean him and keep him from getting dirty, what hope does he offer you when your life gets messy and dirty? Paul's saying these idols aren't real. They won't hold up to the false promises. They'll fail you. And here's the thing, church. It's really easy to look back in our, like, pride of thinking we're like, ooh, we live in 2021, we're enlightened, look at us, progressiveness, whatever. It's like, we can, it's so easy to look back 2,000 years ago and go, how foolish are they to worship and serve these created things and not realize that we do the exact same thing? And not realize we give our lives away in service and sacrifice to things we created Right? These things that do not offer what they think they offer. I love David Foster Wallace. Let's go back to that quote. He continues it, right? He says, everyone worships. There is no such thing as atheism. Then he continues, pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. Not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus. I love this. Pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. See what he says. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty, and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. His words, not mine. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. I would like to do his so on for him. So we all feel mutually convicted and frustrated. Let's keep going. If you center your life, if you worship your spouse or your partner or your best friend, you will be so worried about losing them that instead of loving them sacrificially, you will grow emotionally dependent 
jealous, manipulative, and controlling. If you center your life and identity on your family and children, you will become either a tyrant with no grace or utterly dependent for your self-worth on the fickle emotions of a five-year-old, either way crushing the relationship. If you center your life and identity on your work and career, either you will succeed at the cost of any deep, meaningful friendships or relationships, or you will fail and experience deep depression. If you center your life and identity on pleasure and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You'll become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. A few more. If you center your life and identity on a, quote, noble cause, You'll learn to divide the world into good and bad, and you'll demonize your opponents. And ironically, you'll be controlled by your enemies because without them, you have no purpose. You center your life and identity on religion and morality, not the gospel of Jesus, but on religion and morality. You will, if you're living up to your moral standards, be full of pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. And if you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will become utterly devastating. Your idols my idols, our city's idols, they will fail. And here's the thing, I think, I think we know that. Christian and not, I think we know that. Like, I think if, if you were being honest, if you actually got some quiet in your life and you had to sit with your own soul, I think you would acknowledge what I am going for and searching for and sacrificing for. It's not giving me what it keeps lying and telling me it's going to give me. It never feels like enough. Yet because of our sin, because of our enemy, we keep going back to it. We keep going back to it. We keep going back to it. Or we learn that, well, I don't follow that idol anymore. I've just given it up for something else. Oh, I don't, I don't struggle with greed anymore. I've given up the idol of money. I just now go after power instead. Oh, I don't, I don't struggle with power anymore. I've given up. I don't have to be in control. I don't have to be in charge. I've just gone after lust instead. Approval instead. It was really easy, personally, for me to give up the idolatry that I had of Lindsay's approval of me whenever I had a kid. It's really easy to trade one idol out for another, to keep saying, maybe this will give me what I want, maybe this will give me what I want, maybe this will give me what I want. And as good missionaries for the gospel of Jesus, we have to show our own hearts and the people around us, hey, this will fail you. I guarantee it's not a question. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Because it will. Number three, tell people how Jesus is better than their idols. Tell people how Jesus is better than their idols. I want to say two things really clearly here. Number one is this. Jesus is specifically, not theoretically, he's specifically good news for each one of us and can actually give us what our idols promise but don't deliver. Here's what I mean by that. If control is what you center your life on, you can never have enough, and the pursuit of it will ruin your life, but you're invited to rest in the arms of the good shepherd who controls all things and knows all things and works all things together for his glory and your good. If comfort has been your God, and you're promised in Christ that there's a God in heaven for whom you were created and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore and a promised future eternity with him, where the Bible says gives peace that passes, that denies all understanding. Approval is what you've built your life on, trying to gain the approval of others. You have the Lord of the universe who says in Christ that he delights in you, that he calls you son and daughter. If performance has dictated your life, the gospel is the good news that Jesus has performed in your place. 
that he lived the perfect life you cannot live. And Jesus is the only God who will not let you down because he is the only true God. He is true comfort. He is true peace. He is true belonging in him forever. He is the one who proved it, not only by dying for your sins in your place, but also defeating Satan's sin and death and not letting the grave defeat him. So if the grave cannot hold him, then you know he is who he says he is. He is the God of all comfort. He is the God of all peace. And all the things that we look to for the world to satisfy us, we look to money, we look to success, we look to career, to family, to friendships, to give us belonging, to give us purpose, to give us identity, to to heal what we know is broken in our soul, to get forgiveness for all the things that we've done and will do. And the cross is the answer to all of that. Jesus says, I forgive you. Believe in me. But here's the second thing, and I want to be really clear on this. Jesus offers fully, perfectly, all these things, these idols lie and say they offer us. But here's the second thing. If we're not careful, we can turn Jesus into a functional dispenser of goods or functional genie. Right, well, okay, well, this idol is, isn't giving me what I want. Money's not giving me what I want. Power's not giving me what I want. This job's not giving me what I want. My family's not giving me what I want. So I guess if I really want this thing, then I'm just gonna go try Jesus. It's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is the treasure. Gospel is that Jesus is the one, that he offers true peace, he offers true comfort, that he himself is our peace, that he is our comfort, that he gives us belonging and approval because of Jesus in our place. But we don't worship him for those things, we worship him for him. Worship him because he's the treasure. We go to him for him. All those things are a byproduct, they're not the goal. We don't worship Jesus to get comfort, we don't worship Jesus to get peace. He gives us those things, but that's not the goal. The goal is to get Jesus. He's the treasure. I got to say this because it flies in my face every single day as a pastor in our city. We have to learn to believe and to preach a whole gospel to ourselves and to those around us. There's a sneaky, let me choose the right word, there's a sneaky gospel that lies to you, that says things like, come to Jesus, get paid. Come to Jesus, get the promotion. Come to Jesus, get the problem-free life. Come to Jesus, get the perfect relationship. Come to Jesus, get everything you ever wanted. Come to Jesus, get all of your problems fixed. Come to Jesus, and your life will turn out exactly how you want. Come to Jesus, and everything will be rosy and dandy forever. And that's not the gospel. Just not. Now, does he give us peace? Does he give us comfort? Does he give us joy? Does he give us life forever with God that is more abundant than we could ever imagine? Yes and amen. But he's the treasure. Come to him for him. Number four, be provoked by the idols of our city. Be provoked by the idols of our city. This is where we'll land. Paul says in verse 16, or says about Paul in verse 16, it says, as he was walking around, as he saw that the city was full of idols, his spirit was provoked. He was heartbroken. Not proud. I'm so glad I don't follow after all those things, like all those lame charlatans. Ugh, so much better than them. Not proud. Not indifferent. Oh, there's no way they're going to change anyway. What's the point of sharing the gospel with my neighbor? What's the point of sharing the gospel with my friend? They're not going to believe. They're not going to change. He's not indifferent. He's not proud. He's not a participant. 
Well, if everyone else is going after money, I might as well go after it too. No, he's provoked. He weeps. He mourns. He laments over the brokenness of his city, over the brokenness of his own heart. Here's the thing. We've been talking about mission. This is where I'll end up. We've been talking about mission for, for two months, and we've just been saying the same thing over and over again. We tricked you. You thought we were preaching new sermons. We weren't. We were just saying, hey, go tell people about Jesus over and over and over again. That's the whole thing. If you could summarize how the church was planted, the summary would be the church is planted by the mission and sacrifices of God's people and the power of God's spirit. That's it. Go tell people about Jesus. That's your mission as a follower of Christ. But here's, here's the deal. One of the constant pushbacks and just feedback that I get, and I totally 100% understand it. So this is not me dogging it at all. This is me too. I get it. The constant refrain and one of the worries and fears people have is, well, I don't know what to say. Like, what if they ask me a question and I don't know how to respond? I don't know how to speak the gospel there. And here's the thing, that's a valid question. Let me tell you an illustration that so convicted me three years ago that I've learned to not say that ever again. I don't know sign language. Just don't. I had a friend uh, a few years ago who studied sign language in college. He is a professional sign language person, translator, uh, and he loves it. And he put the work in and he studied it. And every time we would hang out, I'd be like, hey, teach me something in sign language. And he would teach me something and I would forget it like two seconds later. It's just a lot. There's a lot to learn and a lot of motions and a lot of, of movements and all of that. But do you want to know the real reason why I don't know sign language? No one that is really close to me is deaf. Now, here's the thing. Lindsay and I, if we found out there are soon to be this week, one-year-old little baby girl, Harper was deaf. Do you want to know one of the first things I would do is? I would learn sign language. Right? It didn't matter how long it took me. It doesn't matter how much effort. It doesn't matter how many late nights. It doesn't matter what kind of sweat and blood and tears I had to shed. If this was the only way that I could communicate with this child that I loved so dearly, I would learn it. Here's the deal. If you love the people around you, if your heart becomes broken for their brokenness, provoked by the ways that they're trying to run their life, they're trying to figure it out on their own. If you become broken over their sin, here's the thing, wouldn't you want to figure out by any means necessary how to share the good news with them? Wouldn't you want to say, it doesn't matter how much it costs me. It doesn't matter how many late nights. I got to get in God's word. I got to study this. This is the gospel. If this is what it says about Jesus, I got to get in this. I got to pray. I got to seek the Lord. I got to get in community. I got to learn this stuff. And if they ask something that I don't know, then I'm going to go back to this word and say, hey, I don't know. Give me a week. Well, let me figure it out. Give me a week. Let's read something together. Let's, let's figure it out together. It starts by being willing to be provoked. Not indifferent, not frustrated, not participant, provoked. One of the first steps we can take to being provoked over the brokenness of our city is we're being provoked over the idolatry of our own hearts. By realizing that when we were sinners, when we were enemies of God, Jesus came for us. He saw us in our need. He saw us in our weakness. He saw us in our idolatry and our brokenness, and he came. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserved, defeating Satan's sin and death. In other words, we go back to the gospel. Right, if you're struggling to be broken over the sins of the people around you, go back to being broken over your own sins and the God who came to die and forgive you of them. Remember, this is what Jesus has done. This is who he is. And we have the chance every Sunday when we gather to remember this together, right? This little communion cup, this little wafer, this little bit of juice, the, the wafer which represents Jesus' body and the juice which represents his blood. And this is not just some routine thing that we do because I don't know any other way to end a sermon. It's something we do to remember 
and remind ourselves, be provoked because this, the body and blood of Christ, was worth giving up for our brokenness and our sin and our shame and the brokenness and sin around us. And so we take this not lightly, not passively, not as something we do so we can start singing again, but as a means of being provoked for the brokenness of our own souls and the brokenness around us, remembering the gospel of Jesus together. If you're not a Christian, this is one of the only things we'd ask you not to participate in, to not take communion, but rather to take Christ, to believe in him. I'd love to talk to you about that after. I'll be down front. Let me pray for us. Let's get ready to worship and sing to Jesus together. God, we are so grateful for you. I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful for Paul. And thanks for Paul's story. He was your enemy. He thought he, was, he had it all figured out, that he thought he was the good religious guy, that he thought he could earn your approval, earn, your way, earn his way to you. And you met him on the road to Damascus and you shook up his whole world and you said, no, you're not. And the gospel is that Jesus died for you. The gospel is that Jesus died in your place, but he didn't stay dead, he rose again. Now, would you help us as a church be centered around this one thing, the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus actually died and that he actually rose again, defeating Satan's sin and death. And so we can have life eternal with God. Lord, would you help us this week as we look out at the idols of our city and of our own hearts to not be indifferent, to not be prideful, to be broken, to weep and mourn in prayer, to study your word, to seek you and your kingdom on behalf of of our friends that don't know you, of our neighbors that don't know you, of our coworkers that don't know you, as of our coffee table sharers at our coffee shop that don't know you. God, would you break our hearts for the lostness of our sin? We love you. We need you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.